This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. Writing and Teaching of Writing podcast brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. I'm Noah Waspy and this is Beth Reimer. How's it going, Beth? Hey, Noah. It's going great. So since this episode is going to feature an interview with Tom Romano, Dr. Tom Romano, I think it's extremely appropriate that we open with a poem. And Beth, you've brought a poem today, right? I have brought a poem. This is one of my favorite poems. I love to keep it around with me, keep it in my pocket. It's one of those. So... Are you ready for it? I was born ready. All right, awesome. Uh, It's titled The Way It Is by William Stafford. The way it is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. Mm. That that poem is perfect. Why did you choose that poem? So I chose it for um, a couple of reasons. One of them is that my favorite poet uh, is Naomi Shihab Nye. And when I was listening to her one time, she mentioned that one of her favorite poets was William Stafford. And so through that recommendation, I just started reading his poems. And this jumped at me because I feel like this is true about life. I feel like this is true in teaching. And then at a National Writing Project meeting, somebody gave me this poem about um, when you're teaching and when you're in a writing project, there's something you follow that people can see, but you have to explain it and you don't let go no matter what's going on. You hold fast to those beliefs, and you just don't let go of the thread. Absolutely. And on a multi-genre level, um, Angela Fallhaber, our good friend, used to talk about something Tom Romano would say. He would say that one of the most important things in a multi-genre project is to have that thread that runs through the entire project connecting everything. So it works on that level too, right? Right, right. Things to hold on to, whether it's in writing or life or anything. All right. So... Beth, why did you want to start an Ohio Writing Project podcast? Maybe we should let the listeners know, like, our why. Right, this is our first one, so I'm so excited. We've been wanting to do this for a while, and I think the reason we wanted to do this was because of the roots of the National Writing Project. The National Writing Project started with teachers sitting around together in a room and talking about questions, about what was working and wasn't, about sharing practice, And then still today, my favorite rooms are when writing project teachers are in a room together and somebody brings up a question and we have conversation, we hash it out. And I guess, you know, um, right now, podcasts are the way that we have these conversations. Yeah, and they've made the room bigger, right? Right, exactly. Right, this is a giant room now. All we're right. in different states, and we're doing this work. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, coming, at, I'm coming at this from Laramie, Wyoming, and are you, where are you right now in Ohio? 
I'm in Fairfield, Ohio. All right. We're all over the map, aren't we? <laughs> so um, since it's a writing project podcast, what are you writing about? So I'm doing some authentic real world writing right now, and it's grant writing, um, <laughs> which is right. And it's, it's hard and it has deadlines and it has rules and and it has real power when it gets finished for. So I'm doing some grant writing right now. Is it as fun? As, you? Is that as fun as it sounds? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I know. I, I mean, it sounds a little bit like torture, but honestly, when I write grants, I think of what's going to come out on the other end, and it actually is kind of exciting. Okay. So, what about you? What are you writing? Um, I actually just wrote about. I, I've been. We're writing personal narratives in my class, and I was writing beside my students, and uh, I've been writing about a time when I thought I had a church force field. I felt like when I was a teenager first getting my driver's license, that if I was going to church or from church, I could be as reckless as I wanted. And I called it my church right. force field. So that's what I'm running about <laughs> right now. Um, okay, so what's going on? Before we get into like the big stuff, the meaty stuff, the, pe- the stuff that people uh, clicked on this podcast um, for, um, what's going on at OWP headquarters? What's coming up? Right. So this is an exciting year. It's our 40th summer. So all year long, we're celebrating. Uh, we're celebrating with a new podcast right here. Yeah. But we are. We also have a free conference in September that I think um, that Tom Romano will be keynoting. And so by the time everybody hears that, that will have happened. Mm-hmm. We have a weekend class coming up around revision. And we have an online class about implementing literacy practices where you get to try out what you're doing. And then super exciting we are going to be screening the PBS documentary, American Creed, and talking about what does it mean to be American, what's the American Creed, and having really important conversations for educators and students and communities. That's, so, that's amazing. I wish I were in Ohio I so I could be at all these things. Um, okay. Right. So usually this podcast will have a, a special f- format that's easy to predict, easy to understand. We just have questions. Since we have everybody in this digital room, we want to feature questions uh, that lots of teachers ask, Te- questions that come up again and again in staff developments, questions that teachers ask in break rooms. We just want to start addressing some of these questions. So every podcast is going to start with a question that teachers ask, a big one. And we'll get submissions from listeners, we'll get submissions from writing project people. But this time we're starting a little differently. This time we're starting with the person that we want to ask the question, to whom we want to ask the question. We knew that Dr. Romano was going to be keynoting the fall conference, so we knew we wanted him for our first episode. And then we decided to come up with questions that we would want to ask Dr. Romano specifically. Um, I'm going to start with my question, because I think that your question is better, so I want to save yours for last. Is that okay, Beth? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So a while back, um, Dr. Romano used to have um, a, um, in Ojella Magazine, he had a special column. And in one of his columns, he wrote about the role of narrative writing. To me, narrative writing feels so important because our worlds, our inner worlds and our world is communicated through the stories that we share. But narrative writing isn't tested. So I want to ask Dr. Romano to give us some of his thinking about the role of narrative writing in schools. Beth, what's your question that you want to ask? 
Yeah, well, I think your question is really great, so I don't think you had to go first. Oh, thanks. But, so my question comes from um, a place of me first meeting Tom Romano through his book, Clearing the Way. And um, it was the book I read when I took the Ohio Writing Project's Teaching of Writing Workshop. And it was the first book that really made me think that I, I should give more space for students and, you know, clear the way for writers. Um, so because his book really affected me, I would like to know, as he has made such an impact for teachers and students around um, the world here in his writing, as he retires, what is it that he wants teachers of writing to know? Like, no matter what comes at them through standards or anything that's going, what does he want to leave us knowing about teaching writing? Like, what's the thread we're supposed to hold on to? So as I get ready to interview Dr. Romano, these are the two questions that we'll focus on. Of course we're going to talk about multi-genre stuff. Of course we'll talk about everything I can get him to talk about. Uh, is, right. For it, it, yeah, for whatever his schedule allows, passion. right? But these are going to be the two questions that we hang the interview on. So, Beth, thank you for chatting. And listeners, thank you for listening. And I hope that you'll stay tuned as we interview Dr. Tom Romano. Yeah, let me tell you a story first. Sure. That I couldn't help thinking of uh, in the last couple of days. You know, when Walt Whitman published uh, Leaves of Grass in 1855, he sent a copy to Ralph Waldo Emerson, who, who had never read anything like that, right? And Emerson writes to Whitman, he didn't know who he was, and he wrote, he wrote him and said, he started with, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. And I thought, <laughs> Noah is, is, is uh, you know, contacting me here, greeting me the, at the beginning, near the end of a pretty good career. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's a good <laughs> retrospective, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that is beautiful. Um, so let's just jump right in. Welcome, Dr. Romano, to the Right Answers podcast. Uh, let's start with what, what are you writing right now? I'm writing this talk that I'm going to do on Saturday for the Ohio Writing Project. Yeah, so by the time uh, this been, comes out, that talk yeah, will I, have been given. I've been working on, I, I started to, you know, I, did, I knew I was going to be doing this for, you know, several months, I think, maybe more. And uh, I, uh, I I began taking some notes, trying to gather my thoughts together in my notebook in um, mid-August. And then, you know, in the last two weeks, I've been drafting and you know setting up some slides and um revising what i have you know written because i always you know i always do a little i always do much better um much can be a little bit more profound um if i have time to revise and so i've been uh i've been i've been engaged in that and that's always uh pleasurable to me to do that i'm also um you know, I retired from Miami in mid-May, and so I have been—I have had three or four occasions to write something about retirement and my career in education uh, through Miami, uh, various you know parties and celebrations that were planned around it, but also through uh, the University of New Hampshire, where I have taught every summer since 1987. And I taught up there a multi-genre course this summer, and um, 
Linda Reith uh, was up there also, of course. She lives in Durham. And uh, the project up there, the, the New Hampshire Writing Institute, threw a party for Linda and me because we're both retiring. So, you know, I knew I was going to be asked to say some things, and I am loath to uh, rely upon my stumbling speech. So I, of course, wrote something and worked on it and shared it with my classes before I shared it. Um, I, t- I turned in, I sent two poems to English Journal on August the 30th, so we'll see what happens there. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I'm r- writing in my notebook. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, like some of the talk that I'm g- going to be doing, uh, I started in the notebook. Um, but sometimes I'm just, um, you know, I get a poem uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the email in the morning, and it looks like a good prompt. Like uh, yesterday was a poem called, What Isn't in My Resume? Mm. So I thought, hmm, that might be a good uh, quick write for me to write what isn't in my res- resume. Well, if I may ask, what isn't in your resume? Uh, uh, all of my uh, growing up in Malvern, Ohio, in a small town of 1,362 people with a... Uh, with a high school that graduated 31 in my class. So, you know, all those, exper- I put those, a lot of those experiences in a memoir that I wrote in 2008 called Zigzag. But uh, yeah, you, you just let your mind go in that quick write. And, um, you know, I guess, Noah, it, it's uh, one of my fundamental beliefs about writing that Don Murray uh, certainly turned loose on the world in which he said that the writers, the fundamental experience of writing is writing what you don't intend. Mm. And that every student needs to experience that and every teacher needs to experience that or they cannot understand writing. And you know, when I read that in an essay by Murray, um, you know, it struck absolutely true to me. And you know, I think we all know this. Mm-hmm. Because in our bones, because when we were in college, when we were in high school, even if it was a class in which uh, we had to write an essay that was highly structured, when we began to write, we said things in the essay that we did not plan in the outset. Yeah, we could not have outlined in the outset. Uh, so you know, in the in the notebook, that's a that's a great place for for writers to discover that. Yeah, like uh, I think one of my favorite authors, Chuck Klosterman, he uh, once said that he he writes to figure out what he really thinks about something, and it's kind of yeah. the, it's the other side of the same coin, isn't it? Yes, yeah, I think so. There's that quote: "How can I how can I know what I think until I see what I say?" <laughs> that's ex- that's perfect. Yeah. So uh, Beth Reimer, I, I was just talking with her, and we recorded it. It was the intro to this podcast. Uh, she's the co-director, to those who are listening, she's the co-director of the Ohio Writing Project, and she, the question she wanted me to ask you, Dr. Romano, is what do you want teachers of writing to know? Uh, I, I think that uh, I've been saying, started to say this in the last, uh, since last spring, I think, when I did a presentation, worked with some teachers in Chappaqua, New York, and that was that everyone, everyone can write, and our job is to teach them to write a little bit better than they already do. Because mm. I think they can write, whoever they are, they can write. 
wherever they have to start, um, you know, and it's different for a, a, a pre-kindergartner than it is for the college students that I taught at Miami. Big difference there too, though. But I think our job uh, is to teach everybody to bring them a growth and development, right? Yeah. And to bring them along a little bit farther than they already are, and then to pass them off to the next teacher. Yeah, I think the other thing um, that I wrote down here about that question was, um, I got two things actually, is one is authenticity in writing and uh, in teaching writing. And I think that comes with, you know, the, the, uh, the National Writing Project, you know, for so many of us, you know, made, made um, explicit the notion that teachers of writing should be writers. Mm-hmm. They should write. They, are, they, they wouldn't hesitate to call themselves readers, but often teachers who are charged with teaching writing would hesitate to call themselves writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they need to write. They need to go through that process, uh, and not just 10 years ago. You know, I think they need to be actively writing things and brainstorming and drafting and revising because that, that's what will make them authentic I think in the classroom when they teach writing. I don't know about you, but when I student taught, now this was in 1970, and I, I student taught at a, a, a great, um, a, a new rural consolidated school that was a pretty hip mentor teacher I had who was the chair of the English department. And, and we used, she had a, uh, now think of this, 1970, and at the high school, she had a course called introductory composition Hmm. solely about composition which was terrific and i was you know i was uh dedicated to to writing as a college student i had four um fiction writing classes beyond the uh you know advanced writing class that everybody was was supposed to take but when i got out there so that was good so i had this writing but she was using a book called um uh the lively art of writing by Lucille von Payne. Good things about that book, but in retrospect, it was it was a strict, pretty much five paragraph thesis driven essay. She never says five paragraph, but that's essentially what mm-hmm. it was. And I can remember Noah that when I was taking over the class and we would be reading chapters in that book, and I would be in, in those days, you know, sorry to say, I'd be uh, lecturing a lot based <laughs> on the book. Knowing that I felt like a fraud, yeah, because some of the things that I was preaching and lecturing about that Lucille von Payne was talking about were not the ways that I had been writing in college. Yeah, and I think that if, you know, if I had been, uh, there's a lot out there that can lead teachers astray in their pedagogy. I think, but if they if they know writing from the inside. And they they uh, work from that authentic base of knowledge, which isn't to say that we don't learn things mm-hmm. and we don't stretch, and we don't change. But I think there's a fundamental base there that we can teach um, authentically from, and, and uh, it, it'll be good for kids. The other thing I want to say, Noah, is um, I think it's important for teachers of writing, regardless of, of what uh, level they teach, to steep themselves in the sound practice of teaching writing. 
So I would like to see elementary school teachers, um, you know, read the great stuff of Katie Wood Ray, say, or, you know, some of Lucy Calkins stuff out of Teachers College. But I think they need to go back to Don Graves, too. Mm-hmm. I think they re- need to read uh, James Britton and find out where some of the roots of teaching writing and using language, written language, uh, uh, sprang from. And because when, when some of these bad ideas come down the pipe, and sometimes these bad ideas are, uh, are sponsored by fellow educators, mm-hmm. that they, they can smell out those bad ideas and they can challenge them. So those are my three things. Yeah, well, you know, you know that's a, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, what you just said, it makes me think about that old, um, that old metaphor. It's, like a, it's almost a cliche about the ship that was built and then, you know, eventually a part broke and then another part broke and there came a point when the ship was made of all replacement parts. Was it still the ship? Uh-huh. Is, it, is it still I the same thing? <laughs> yeah, so, it, and uh, what you just said made me think about writing workshop a lot. And we need to, so what you're saying is like, we, it's, there's a lot of people saying a lot of things about writing workshop. A lot yeah. of people have some good ideas. A lot of people have some other ideas about writing workshop. And it's important to look at the design of the original ship. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and look to see what was working about that and look to see what wasn't working. You know, um, let me throw this into the mix. It'll probably make some people mad. Um, <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> my granddaughters go to a, um, a Montessori school. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, my wife and I have really been happy with the education that they've gotten in this multi in this Montessori school except uh, for the teaching of writing mm. and, and I think that you know I I think they're at least this Montessori school that our granddaughters are going to I think they were off base I don't think there was enough teaching of writing you know they're following the kids interests and everything but it, it looked to me like there needed to be a more concerted effort in teaching directly and getting kids involved in more writing than that Montessori school did. So, and, and when you think about it, Maria Montessori was writing what in the early, early years of the 20th century, I think. Mm-hmm. When I, I think the notion of what kids had to have for writing was a little different than it is in 2019. Yeah. So that's something that, that you know, we need to weigh. And, 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 and look at our authentic experience as writers and see how that jives. See if there needs to be some changes made. Yeah, I, lo- I love what you say about having that authentic experiences, experience of writers. It reminds me of something that Chris Tavani uh, said. She calls it, she says how important it is for us to have that parallel experience. Uh-huh. Uh, Stacy Schubitz encourages teachers to do mirror writing where we write in a way that mirrors our, the way our students are writing because sometimes it's so easy to get, even if you do write, it's easy to get that curse of knowledge where you have forgotten the lessons that you had to learn when you were first starting. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, when, I, uh, when I, I, so I retired at Miami, but the next three years uh, in the spring, I've signed up, in, they have a uh, retire, rehire program. Uh, and I've signed up to teach one class in the spring semester. And it's a class that I developed five years ago. It's called um, uh, Writing for Educators. Mm. Um, 
I should I think I should have called it crafting authentic voice, written voice. But anyway, it's, it's a class in which I got, you know, it's usually sophomores. There might be a couple seniors in there who just want to take another writing class, maybe a freshman or two. But um, I get them involved in writing and every, everything that they write, I write with them. And it's, it's really easy. That's really easy to do if you have kids keeping a notebook and you've, uh, you've instituted some quick writes. You know, Linda mm-hmm. Reef's wonderful two quick write books available through Heinemann has so many great ideas that uh, teachers can use in the classroom to engage students in three to five minute quick writes. Um, and, and so when I have students do the quick writes or extended versions of quick writes, I write with them and I, and I sit in front of them and I say, you know, I want you to trust a gush. Mm-hmm. I'm going to set the timer for eight minutes and I'm going to write with you. Uh, and, 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 and we proceed like that. And I think that they take the last, well, one student even said to me one time, uh, what do you mean? You're going to write two? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not what ki- college people are used to, is it? Yeah, I, I, maybe a lot of high school people, too. Yeah, I bet you're right. Yeah. So I know probably a lot of people might have uh, downloaded this podcast after hearing you talk, and a lot of people might be downloading this podcast to hear about multi-genre, but just like um, in a concert where they save all their hits for the end, we're going to get to multi-genre toward the end. I wanted okay. to, um, a while back, I think it was the spring of 2016 issue of Ojella. Um, you had this recurring column and in that specific issue, you wrote about the necessity of narrative and that article forever changed the way I saw narrative writing. Before I read that article, I think I was like a lot of teachers because narrative isn't on the state test anymore. Um, a lot of teachers will maybe start with it at the beginning of the year just to get to know their kids and maybe they'll do a little bit of fictional narrative or other kind of narrative writing at the end of the year. Right. Um, and but narrative doesn't really get much of a, doesn't get much play in a lot of classrooms because of the new emphasis on argumentative writing and informational source-based writing. And yeah. when I read your article, my idea of the importance of narrative changed. Do you care to talk a little bit about what you see that like if you could rethink the way we teach narrative, what would the role of narrative be in a typical classroom? I think the narrative is uh, is uh, fundamental, is a seedbed. So you know, in that writing course that I talked to you about, one one of the first, uh, I, I you know, I have them doing quick writes and one pagers and that, where they just you know spew out their thinking. But the first kind of assignment that we that we uh, work on and brainstorm a little bit and draft and then revise is uh, I ask them to identify an educational indelible moment. And what I want them to do is not just to tell about the moment. They've got to do some telling, but also, so so they've got to do some like narrative summary. But what I'm really interested in getting them to do that they aren't used to doing is dramatic narrative, is to to write about what happened in um, in, in a way that's almost like a movie that brings it to life on the page. And, and I, so all I want them to do there is to show that and then a little, make a little sense of it. But then, you know, when we move on, all of us, to other kinds of writing, argument, 
persuasion, and I can't, I'm on the common core, right? I can't imagine the worth of an argument that isn't persuasive, but whatever, <laughs> for the Ohio learning standards. But in informational writing, that all of that writing benefits when we have narrative storytelling threads through it, when we have characters in it. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that narrative um, is, is something that we can use in any kind of writing. And it's, I think it strengthens, strengthens our arguments and it makes more compelling our, our, um, our, our informational writing. You know, there was a, um, on the Writer's Almanac some years ago, there was a, it was an anniversary of the uh, liberation of Buchenwald, the Nazi uh, death camp. And so uh, he gives us, whoever wrote that, you know, gives us the, some facts about Buchenwald and the soldiers coming in. And then it, it, it's, it's stirring, you know, to read about that. But it ends then with a, a an excerpt from an Elie Wiesel um, uh, memoir in which he describes the story of what happened when this big sergeant came in among the prisoners who were so emaciated and they were so grateful and yet they were weak and you know near death but they tried to lift him up on their shoulders and they, they couldn't do it well you know it was it just was a way of sealing that story mm-hmm. was a way of sealing that bit of informational writing that made it unforgettable it's so you know I'm, I'm with you if you look at any of my books you know I make a I make a lot of arguments in them and a lot of informational writing but boy there's story in there all the way because I mm-hmm. believe that's how we you know we're um, we're storytelling animals we love stories yeah. we love telling them we love uh, we love getting them so and I believe that that we can craft them in a way that has more impact. Completely agree. And um, it's almost like story is the perfect delivery mechanism for that point that you want to make. I mean, anyone who makes a, who wants to make a really solid point, a, a politician on the debate stage is going to tell a story yeah. to show how this idea works in practice. Yeah, how does it affect people? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one, of the, um, one of the points that I'm going to make in my talk um, on, on Saturday at the Ohio Writing Project, or I should say that I did make. Huh? <laughs> I will have made. I don't yeah, know. I will have made. <laughs> so, all right. I guess it's this is a good segue into the multi-genre conversation because, in a way, if you're fusing narrative into an argument, you're starting to blend genres. So let's talk a little bit. Mul- let's talk a little bit about uh, multi-genre and the power of multi-genre. If someone's listening and they don't know what multi-genre is, um, how would you explain what a multi-genre paper could be? I know um, that's kind of a big question, but yeah. I'm sure you've probably answered it a few times. So, multi-genre research paper—it's—it's um, a—it's a, a, a topic of interest, and I hope passion on the writer's part that they want to dive into um, with with some research, and then instead of you know, instead of writing a um, 10 or 20 page expository monologue about that, uh, they write a paper that is composed 
of many different genres, poems, stories, newspaper articles, haiku, many different kinds of poems that, that all are about the same topic or theme. And uh, I, the, the pay, what, what uh, the writer starts to find out when they write this uh, is that uh, the, more, the more they write, the more they see to write. The more they see that um, what like, like a piece that they might write uh, a story, let's say, from their mother's point of view, they might see after they've written it and they go back to it, that maybe they need to write the same story from the child's point of view and give that different slant. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's composed of many genres and many voices all about a central story or a central theme. I guess central theme because it mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, it's got story. I, I think I think stories are uh, the backbone of multi-genre for sure. Oh, yeah. But uh, there's many different kinds of genres. And, you, and you know, Noah, um, there are there are things there are things that I'm looking for in a multi-genre paper that that I tell the students that that I you know I I have to be in there like there has to be some kind of a opening or a preface or an introduction or uh, a, a story that that will engage us in the multi-genre paper but uh, the best genres. The things that most surprise me are the ones that I didn't count on. Mm-hmm. The, kid, the kids do something because of their immersion in the topic and because they've read a lot of, you know, they've read some multi-genre papers uh, by, by people at their level, and then they're sharing each other's work. And I'm in there getting them to try flash fiction and poems and informational pieces, let's say, haiku, and then because of all that, you know, one thing leads to another. So you yeah. get a you get a, a paper that's, um, I mean, it's it's for the students. I think they they when they start this, they have no idea how the how the the paper is going to grow into something that they could never have fully envisioned in the beginning. Yeah. And for the teacher who's who's assessing them, um, it, it's a, it's a delight. It's it's a you know it's a, um, a a surprising delight I think because you're working with kids all the way so there are some surprises but they're usually good surprises if yeah. you've been keeping tabs on what the kids are doing. So multi-genre work is what you're saying is multi-genre work is a great way to tap into that purpose that we talked about earlier to be surprised by those things you didn't realize that you the, the, those things that you didn't intend to write when you first started. Yes. Um, yeah. Do you mind if I share a snippet that kind of speaks to this point from your book, Fearless Writing? Oh, uh, of course. I'd love to hear that okay. author. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a great author. Um, in chapter one, you actually open with a really great example of some multi-genre writing. Um, you, talk about, um, you talk about Brian, who had just researched um, John Lennon, and you, um, you share a piece from his multi-genre project. It went like yeah. this. Unfinished music number one, John. He hit the pavement, ass first. Yoko raised his head. He wanted to embrace her, but a hundred people were standing on his arms. Oh God, Yoko, I've been shot. 
if I yeah. were a teacher reading that student's work, um, that's so much more than a research paper that I, you know, that I would normally would have expected to read. That's so much more than, you know, copy pasted quotes, <laughs> and maybe yeah. a little bit of elaboration afterward. That student is inhabiting the research when they do this multi-genre work. Right. It, you know, this makes me think of two things. Uh, you know, we love working with all the students and we, we, we revel in the growth and development of the least of them and the best of them, the best language users of them. But, you know, we have those kids who are bellwethers, mm -hmm. who do things in their writing that maybe you hadn't thought of, yeah. but that uh, is, uh, it, it is like points the way. And that kid, Brian, Brian McKnight was his name. And, and he was in the first class, Noah, of high school seniors that I tried multi-genre with. And he wrote this piece about, um, you know, John Lennon. And, you know, frankly, Noah, I had, I mean, I, I knew this idea had possibilities, but I, I was a, a modicum okay teacher in teaching them. <laughs> and Ryan showed me how to, he, in his writing, he used this um, idea of the repetent, uh, of something, a form or language that is repeated periodically throughout the multi-genre paper that adds cohesion to it. Mm -hmm. So you read, read that first piece about that's how he began his multi-genre paper. And then after you read several pieces involved in the life of John Lennon, you come to unfinished music number two, Yoko. Mm -hmm. And it's her version of that moment when he is shot in New York City. And then you, after that, you read several more pieces, and then he ends with unfinished music number three, which is from the doctor's point of view, pronouncing John Lennon dead. And I, I read that and I thought, well, this is what I gotta, I gotta, um, you know, I have to emphasize this idea of cohesion through repeating language or forms in their multi-genre papers. Because, you know, multi-genre papers um, I don't know if you've noticed it, though, but they, they, they can be hard to, to understand mm -hmm. because it's so different than, you know, an expository thesis-driven uh, uh, research paper that the reader needs a little bit of help sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the, the writer needs to give the reader some help. And I think creating a repetend like this, some repeated language, some, um, you know, I, I mentioned... You, you, get, you get a story from the mother's point of view, and then several genres later, you can get the same story from a child's point of view. Mm -hmm. And the reader reading that will be going, oh, yeah, yep. I, I remember this, you know, and will register the differences. And it's a great way for writers to, ex you know, experience a good reading lesson, too. In reading, we often teach a great way to think about an author's theme or a message they're trying to get across is look for those things that keep coming up again, 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 and That's again. It. And That's exactly it. when yeah. we practice that as writers, boy, do we get to inhabit that space? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So what, 
what advice would you give to a, a teacher who's getting ready to take, as you call it, the multi-genre plunge? Uh, well, I, I, you know, it would help to write a multi-genre paper yourself. Mm -hmm. um, there, was a, there was a book that came out after my first multi-genre book, Blending Genre, in 2000. Her book came out in 2001, Jamil Allen. Um, it was about writing multi-genre. It's a Heinemann book. And it's about Mike uh, writing multi-genre in grades four through six. Her examples are all fifth graders. But Camille would write a multi-genre paper with her students every every semester she taught it. And she, she's got hers in there. And, you know, that taught her a lot about the territory of multi-genre. I would say also get a hold of a multi-genre book mm -hmm. and read that. Like you mentioned, Fearless Writing. I think for a high school teacher that, or a college teacher, even a, a middle school teacher, yeah. uh, that's a good resource to read. But there's also, you know, a, a book by Linda Poots, um, Melinda Poots, mm -hmm. uh, called, called the Multi-Genre Handbook that's published by Heinemann. Mm -hmm. And all the examples in there are high school uh, uh, juniors. There's, um, uh, what is it, Breaking the Boundaries, I think. It's another high school, or it's another... Um, it's another multi-genre book, but it's about, you know, like third, fourth graders. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of resources out there for teachers that they can immerse themselves a little mm -hmm. bit in the literature of multi-genre with some good ideas and strategies that, that, that they can adapt for sure and find their own way. Yeah, I know. And then, and then you know, you got to, um, you know, this one, uh, I, I published a poem one time in language arts and uh, a, a teacher in Portland, Oregon, had was a reader of language arts. She's like a second grade teacher, first second grade teacher, and and she liked the poem. She brought it into her children, and she asked the children to um, to to uh, listen to the poem and then to to draw pictures and to write about the the poem and to write to the author. And then she sent me these things that they wrote, and and the poem was about. The teacher uh, going out onto the edge of the high board, standing there quavering, right, and then getting up the nerve to, as you, your word, plunge into <laughs> the water. Well, this one little girl, Mary, and I've got this in my first book, my first multi-genre book. Mm -hmm. um, she, her picture, pictured her, you know, springing off the board in midair. And she's got a, there's a, a dialogue bubble and it says, hi, Tom. And she is diving off the board. And I, my first thought was, you know, Barry, you got this wrong. It's the teacher. And then I thought, no, um, uh, what we want, we have to take the plunge so that our, our students can take the plunge. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. And so that so is. Go ahead. So you got to be a little risky. You got to try some things out and then see see what happens when the kids try it out themselves because you'll get surprises. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no dipping your toe in. Um, uh, someone named Stephanie Jokeman who writes for Moving Writers, I think that's who it is, um, she calls it crash and learn. You just got to jump in and yeah. see where the gaps are, see where the problems are, and then uh, try it again. That's it. You know, you, um, you, you it's like that you, uh, you try something out and then you look back and you... You see things that you need to plug 
That's right. Plug up, you know, like like the first time I the first year or two I did multi genre, the the students those high school kids they they saw where my passion was, and my passion they could tell was about all these genres they could write, and it wasn't about academic responsibility. So mm-hmm. their their academic responsibility in citing sources and this and that was abysmal. <laughs> And it was my fault, you know. I mean, I they they could see it, so yeah. you can bet. You know, and went back. I I plugged up that pretty pretty well, and so that they would be academically responsible as well as imaginative, creative, and substantive. But so, to, you know, to you know, be fair to you, genre, though, to... It, it 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 lends itself. Um, people who don't don't write in, don't honor multiple genres who don't honor students' ability to write them as well as read them, because all teachers have, you know, they have students reading all kinds of genres, and they should be writing those genres mm-hmm. also. But this multi-genre paper, if, if, if it's slipshod uh, in a scholarly way, that is, is an easy way for people to dismiss it. Mm-hmm. So I want, I want my students to be, uh, academically responsible in that way, and in the end, making a note page and indicating where ideas came from when you ought to tell the reader about that. That's that's fair, but I mean to be fair to you, like the example in the book Fearless Writing of Jonathan, um, yeah, he got that note from that college professor later that they wished that he would have done a better job citing his sources, but he still won the contest because he had what was a, like you can plug in that academic responsibility a lot easier than you can plug in that creativity and that inspiration. I think I think you're right on the button there, Noah. Yeah. So I want to get in a little bit more into teach into why teachers should really take multi-genre work seriously. Because you, I mean, there you bookend the you bookend fearless writing in, in a way with some skepticism. You have the the conversation between the skeptic and the multi-genre enthusiast, and then yeah. at the end of the book you have the color commentators um, arguing over how does multi-genre fit in with the common core standards. I think that the after reading Fearless Writing in any of your work about multi-genre, in any work maybe out there at all about multi-genre, I think that the it's when you zoom out, what is a language arts education for? What is the purpose? And I think that multi-genre work definitely does a better job of fulfilling that purpose than worrying about some kind of standard. I know that that's kind of a radical thing to say, and it's easy to say when you're, if, like, if you're not being observed by a principal. But I want to talk a little bit about why multi-genre in the age of big testing and in the age of Common Core and how it can maybe um, not be something that where it necessarily butts heads as much as some people might think. So why do you think people are? Why do you think some people are skeptical about multi-genre work, and uh, how would, how do you reply to some of those skeptics? Well, you know, and uh, I mean, so much of our training in uh, in, in uh, high school and college is writing essays about something somebody else's writing, hmm. or writing essays uh, analyzing uh, some concept. And, and 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 I you know I want to do I want to do that kind of writing, but I also I think that students ought to be writing in all the genres that they are 
reading. Uh, so they should be writing drama. You read drama, you should be writing drama. Uh, if, if you read, you know, The Crucible, you should be writing your own little scenes and plays about uh, righteousness and, and, uh, and being ganged up on and that kind of thing. Uh, they should be trying fiction. They should be, you know, creative nonfiction is huge today. In, in our world of publishing, they should be writing those kinds of things. So I think I think that 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 uh, writing in multiple genres is is truer to the kinds of of uh, writing imaginative and argumentative and persuasive that's out there in the world. You know, I you mentioned um, uh, I, I think I in that article that you mentioned in Nojella. Mm-hmm. I use the example of Charles Blow, yeah. who writes op-ed pieces in the New York Times, and he had written about uh, an, an op-ed piece, a persuasive essay about the killing of that 12-year-old kid in Cleveland. And, you know, he took you through, he used narrative in that op-ed essay to bring home the seriousness of what happened there, that's the real world of writing. Yeah, that's not that's not simply a thesis-driven essay that makes a, a makes a, a logical uh, point simply to the mind, ignoring the heart. Yeah. And multi-genre, multi-genre can get kids to the heart. Absolutely, it feels like if you're doing, you know, if if, if you read, read read fearless writing you can't leave that book without having an understanding that multi-genre work doesn't go against anything that you would teach. It actually helps students really live inside of what you teach. It's, yeah. It reminds me, it remind, I thought of like this quote that Barry Lanin said, when a, a kid gets a new toy, like a baby gets a new toy, they don't have to do like a pre-assessment and then they don't have to do a quiz on the toy. The, the baby picks up the toy, they put the toy in their mouths, they put the toy in their ear, they might hit the toy against something, and gradually yeah. they start to figure out what the toy is really for just by playing with it. And I feel like multi-genre gives teachers and students the opportunity to really play with these concepts in a way that leads to a more rich and authentic understanding of what you wanted to teach. Uh, you're absolutely right, and um, and multi-genre has this um, has this power to get kids to invest in their writing like never before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that, I think, is uh, topic choice for sure. You know, when kids have a, a choice of topics and they can write about whatever they want, and and I have my students. Um, you know, when they, before they embark on their multi-genre essays, I ask them to turn into me three to five juicy paragraphs, one of which is about a topic that they might like to uh, explore in a multi-genre paper, so that I can read them and, you know, give them some feedback and tell them what I think, And uh, so, but ultimately the choice is theirs, and when they've got this topic choice that they've, they've made themselves, um, their 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 um, commitment to it is heightened. The other thing then is um, because if they can write in so many different genres, then you're showing them all these possibilities that they start to write in ways that surprise them and I think fulfill them. Mm-hmm. You know, suddenly they write a poem 
that uh, about their topic that is right on the money and uh, and expresses something that they've never done before well i think that i think the momentum of that the momentum of that fulfillment carries them forward yeah you know i think about john lennon as a student since we already talked about him a little bit and you know he really led him in the book you you talk about how our lives are multi-genre and john lennon's collective work is a multi-genre project he was an artist he wrote poetry he wrote other stuff he made music he gave speeches his life was a multi-genre project and what better way to prepare people for living a creative and artful life than to engage and immerse students in multi-genre work uh, no, I, I might get some T-shirts made with uh, the inscription on it. Life is a multi-genre project. It truly, it truly is, isn't it? Yeah. So, if people want to learn more about um, strategies on how to do multi-genre work, things to avoid, find examples, they can get fearless. They can buy your book from Heinemann, Fearless Writing. You've also written several other books on the topic. They could just Google you. Yep. I think it's okay. time for us to bring this interview to our final five questions. Okay. So these are just kind of a little bit more lighthearted. What do you prefer to write with? I just bought four of them yesterday. Oh, I love it. Pilot G2 1.0. Oh, the classic. So you like the bold, you like the bold I do juicy like pens. The bold. <laughs> And boy, sometimes you go to places and they have 0.7 and 0.5, but they don't have the bold one. Yep. <laughs> and I like the bold one, for sure. Yeah. And, and um, when I have a draft, uh, you know, I might start it in my notebook, but, you know, like fearless writing, Noah, I, I, I wrote the whole thing on yellow pads. Every morning mm-hmm. with that G2 pen, writing a chapter on a yellow pad, typing it in, uh, to the computer, making a print copy, and maybe three, four days later, looking at it again, double-spaced. And that's when I get out my Dixon Triconderoga HB2 black pencils. Yeah. The Cadillac of pencils. That's what I like to revise uh, the the topics with. Um, Oh, that's the opposite of what a lot of people would do, isn't it? Well, you mean they start with the uh, pencils? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, erasing is too takes too much time. I, I'd rather just cross it up. Yeah, you know, one of my um, I usually in my in my classes, I will when I'm writing with them, and when I want to get kids to start thinking about revising, because so many of our students, college students, high school students, they don't revise. They might go over it, spell check it. But then they don't they don't rethink it. They don't give it yeah. a day or two and go back and look at it. Yeah. So what I do is is I will, you know, whatever I've written, I'll make a double space and I put it on the doc cam and then in front of the students I take that pencil out and start to cool, cross out and add things and all this. And one of my, one of the graduate students several years ago wrote in her final uh, um, reflection she talked about that moment when I did that in class in front of everybody. And she said, when you started to mark up that perfectly good typed copy, <laughs> I thought, what are you doing? Yeah, well, that would hurt like someone who has some OCD tendencies. That would hurt their brain, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, well, I want them to, I want them to know that they can, uh, 
doing that can get them to an even more perfect OCD place. You're so right, because you're not fixing the way it looks. You're fixing what it really is. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I want to get on a soapbox. I think this is a more important question than people realize what you prefer to write with. I tell my yeah. students, having something you look forward to writing to is just more important than more people than most people realize. <laughs> I, I, yeah, spot on. I mean, uh, you know, I've got a, a kind of a, a, a notebook that I've kept. I think I must have 50 notebooks since 1973. But the, the one that has been my go-to notebook the last um, 20 years mm-hmm. is uh, a Canson sketchbook and uh, a black with a ring binder that can fall open although every now and then a student will who's been traveling abroad say who's particularly uh feels like they want to thank me will bring me a leather bound journal that's that's very nice uh so if any of you are my students out there and you don't want to do that, uh, you know, I, I would certainly write in that journal. <laughs> that is, that's a great tip for people who want to get you a gift. Um, yeah. So what are your preferred writing conditions? Um, I like, I like to write in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my wife and I go to Miami University's Recreation Center and usually get there about 10 to 6 in the morning and and get that workout or I go swimming three days a week and um, and then we come back and then I'll I'll do some writing then but when I have a big project to write like when I had you know my last book was called write what matters when I was writing that and when I wrote uh, fearless writing I alter my schedule mm-hmm. and that is that I get up at 5 30 and I will write or work on writing, you know, maybe gathering materials together, writing in my notebook, revising. I will do that right off the bat mm-hmm. from 5.30 until about, I don't know, 7.30, 8.30, maybe heroically 9 o'clock. Ooh. And then I will go swimming. Right. And, and what happens then, Noah, is that um, when I'm swimming and doing that kind of, you know, for 41 minutes in the pool, back and forth, back and forth, back mm-hmm. and forth, not counting the, the laps, but just going by time, is that some of that, some of the things I was working on, some of the problems I was facing will start to bubble up in my consciousness. And yes. I will start to work on them without even meaning to. Yes. And, you know, all of a sudden you think, oh, I can make that character, you know, step into the drugstore for a moment. Or I know what I, I know how I can start that piece. Um, that's you know so you know if you can get physical exercise into your writing regimen some way uh, any whatever your physical exercise is you know robert frost would walk mm-hmm. in, in orchards you know but i think that physical exercise lets lets you uh, work on your writing when you're not even uh you know writing yourself don don graves said that one of the important things about having a routine writing workshop four days at least three four days a week at the same time every day was that kids would start to uh, count on that Mm -hmm. so he liked for when kids would come into the classroom those third graders would come in that what they could expect to do every day was to have some writing time in their notebooks 
Yeah. And and he said that they would, you know, they, that that'll become so routine that they will they will they will start to work on stuff when they come yeah. into the classroom before they come into the classroom. <laughs> Dr. Romano, if you and I ever build our own school, <laughs> we would start out with kids writing, and then they'd go to PE, and then they'd come back to their notebooks, wouldn't they? Well, <laughs> hey, that would be a good idea. Uh, unless the PE teacher were like this one that I taught with early in my career. <laughs> there is that when variable. I, when, when I, gave a, I gave a workshop to everybody, all, the, all of my colleagues at the principal's request about you know writing about using writing yeah a lot, lot of a lot of um, pushback from some of the teachers who didn't see that there was room in their in their uh, content area but one of the ones one of the teachers who really took to the idea was the pe teacher and i went into yeah. the this class his the gym one morning and he had all the kids they were in their in their gym togs and they were on the floor spread out with pieces of paper and pencils, writing oh before they gosh. engaged in physical exercise. Oh, the, he had it backwards, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, big triumph, I'm telling you. you it, what you're saying speaks to me, though. Um, when I write in the morning, I, I carry a notebook with me, and I just, you know, plant seeds. I'll, I'll capture something I observe. I'll read something. I'll write something down. And then in the morning, I'll go look at the seeds I'd planted, and then I'll ride my bike to work, and then I get to work, and I get out that legal pad. So I can relate to what you're saying, that exercise, it does something for the creative process. You know, yeah, because yeah, you've got the seeds, and then you do the exercise, and you start to percolate a little bit more. That's right. So Lula, can, you, can you hear our wire-haired fox terrier in the background barking? Yeah, I can. It sounds happy. Did someone just His come in? His name is Whitman. Whitman? <laughs> That's so perfect. Whitman plays a big role in a lot of your writing, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Both, both of them. <laughs> so um, let's get to our last couple questions or three questions. Who are your writing mentors? Or maybe mentor texts? Um, you know, I think, I, I, think um, I mean, we just mentioned Whitman. He mm -hmm. has been, you know, in, and I was 19 years old in college. I had not read Whitman and I read, uh, read some of uh, Leaves of Grass, mm -hmm. and that impacted me a great deal for what it said to a young man who was kind of adrift mm -hmm. and with a lot of questions. And, you know, Walt Whitman just met everything head on in that poem. So he's been important to me. I think uh, uh, I, have, uh, I have liked the the uh, creative nonfiction of Annie Lamott. Mm. Uh, I have liked uh, the the, uh, the fi early fiction, especially of uh, of Michael Andache. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, I'm reading a poet named Joyce Sutphin. Uh, Mary Oliver has been important to me. Um, you know, different. Uh, yeah, I mentioned Charles Blow. I, I love reading Charles Blow's op-ed pieces in the New York Times. Uh, I read this morning in the New York Times an op-ed piece by um, by Frank Bruni, who mm -hmm. uh, writes about politics. And boy, he just seems right on the button to me. I love the way he writes. So, you know, I'm looking for good writing wherever I can get it. Yeah, so it sounds like everything you read is a writing mentor. And... Uh... Yeah, that's great. So you look, you look for a gem, gem. You know, last summer, um, a friend of mine, I, I wrote, a, I wrote a, I had a, a piece in English Journal in March, 
that was about John Keats, the poet, the English poet, died, poor guy, died when he was 25 years old, and, and me, and how that he affected me when I was 18. And then also I read, I read some biographical information about Keats. But a friend of mine sent me this 752-page uh, biography of John Keats that won the Pulitzer Prize in 1960. And old fool Tom, who has to read every word, I was bound to determine to read this. And, and, you know, even about 30 pages in, I thought, oh, my God, this is not for me. This is for a Keats scholar <laughs> where, where he spends like 12 pages trying to figure out what was said at this one dinner party based on several different journals that people kept. Yeah. But I kept reading Noah because I thought, maybe I'm going to find some gems somewhere. <laughs> and I did. I that, found a few gems. That is awesome. So you've been such an integral member of the Ohio Writing Project family for so long. So why do you recommend, one of our questions is always going to be, why OWP? Why should people be part of this community? I, I thought at the time that I did it, it was the best professional development I had ever experienced. Agreed. But uh, nothing, nothing came close to it. And uh, after that, uh, I think we, when I did it, the project in 1981, um, we went six weeks, and it was four days a week, uh, all day long. It's only four. And then weeks after now. that, of course, I wrote. I wrote so much, and then after that, and I read so much, I should say too, mm-hmm. um, that that uh, you know I started to present professionally because of the project, and I started to 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 uh, work with other teachers and also be around great teachers. You know, we can get the idea that we're lone wolves out there. Yeah. And, and that we there's nobody doing what we're doing. Well, you, you know, at the project, you find out there are people who are passionate about similar things that you are. And you can spur each other on and get that kind of resonance that comes with working with people who want to see you do good work and want to see you stretch. So, and, and you become a writer, a writer teacher. And that's where you ought to be if you're a teacher of literacy. Right on. So... Where can people find more of your work? I know that you're retiring, but I don't think you're really I don't think you're really stopping in your work. So where can people find some of your past work and where can how can people uh, stay in touch with some of the new stuff that you uh, continue to put out? Well, I, you know, Heinemann has published uh, six of my seven books, although two of them are now out of print. Um, I have also a book called my last latest book is called Write What Matters that's available on Amazon uh, for those who want to write, but sometimes lose heart. Mm. You know, you get a little discouraged because there's so much out there. Um, that book, I, I kept the price of that book at 18 bucks because I was determined to uh, go against the in- inflation of, of, of uh, you know, teacher books. So, and, and you know, also if you Google me, um, you know, you can you can probably find uh, articles that I've written in the past. Mm-hmm. There's a you know that uh, you mentioned the article that was in Ojella. Um, you know, that was a series of six articles that I wrote. I wrote to the editor Patrick Thomas mm-hmm. after I had drafted "Write What Matters," and I told him what I was doing, and I offered to write 
six articles and I explained what each one would be about that I would that I would you know take from write what matters mm-hmm. and what I discovered Noah you know I, I thought first oh I'll just take some chapters from write what matters and just plop them into Ojella <laughs> well it didn't work that way I had uh, I had a lot more to say and a, a, a different tact I had to take uh, so those were kind of new you know yeah and uh, so th- those would be good to look up in fact you know I'm thinking about after I get some things off my plate looking at those six articles to see if I can shape them into uh, a, a book that might be more um, it might be more appealing to Heinemann or Stenhouse mm-hmm. well personally and, and, I you know, would love they that. could also they could also email me um, R-O-M-A-N-O-T-S at M-I-A-M-I-O-H dot E-D-U. I can't imagine I'll get inundated, inundated and I answer all my emails. Wonderful. Um, just so you know, that that uh, six-article arc, you can find that at Octella's website, too, if they search, if you just you know, Google search um, Ojella or Octella. Um, and just so you know, whenever I got my Ojella magazines during that arc, uh, that was always the first thing that I'd open up to because it's such a great series. I can't recommend great. it highly enough. Great. Those were fun to write. Those were really fulfilling for me to write. Yeah, thank you, Noah. Awesome. Dr. Romano, thank you. you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. What a great interview. Hey, I have enjoyed this chat. Yeah, likewise. Dear listener, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to know more about Ohio Writing Project, you can go to miamioh.edu slash Ohio Writing Project. Um, you could also find Ohio Writing Project on Twitter and Instagram at OWPMU. I personally, on behalf of Beth Reimer, the co-director of the Writing Project, would like to thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to subscribe download, leave us a good review, all that stuff that people ask you to do on podcasts. You have been listening to Write Answers, a production of Ohio Writing Project, Teachers Teaching Teachers. Teachers.